welcome to the Integrated Schools Podcast. I'm Andrew, a white dad from Denver. And I'm Courtney, a white mom from L.A. Episode 14, Kirkland on Integration. We're joined today by Dr. David Kirkland, the Executive Director of the NYU Metropolitan Center for Research on Equity and the Transformation of Schools. Dr. Kirkland is an educational equity scholar, activist, educator, cultural critic, and author. And Dr. Kirkland is brilliant. Yeah. And he gives us so many ways to think. It's clear that he has been thinking about these issues for a really long time. Yeah, I would say this one felt a bit like trying to drink from a fire hose. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just just keeping up with all of the brilliant people who have influenced him, who he can quote from memory, was a little bit overwhelming. Yeah. But if you listeners, if you want to check out the show notes for this episode, you'll see links to many of the scholars and citations that he references. Yeah. So this is a long one. I think it's a really important one. Yeah. We, we both listened to this a bunch of times to process it all. and <laughs> At um, least a bunch. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I'm excited to excited to get it out there into the world to share it with you. So I, I will say I am a little disappointed in the sound quality for Dr. Kirtland. Yeah. Uh, we, we had some technical difficulties. We had to use a phone line and I think the content more than makes up for it, but there are definitely some bits that are a little bit hard to understand. Yeah. At, at one point, he references Gloria Ladson-Billings, who is the former president of the American Educational Research Association. So be, you know, on the listen for that. And our apologies if it takes a little bit more work on your end to get what Dr. Kirkland is saying. But yeah, it's it's worth it. Deli, the only other thing to highlight before we jump in, Dr. Kirkland mentions a couple times de facto versus de jure segregation. And I'm sure most people know what that is. I wanted to go back and uh, refresh my own memory. So just in case, you know, de jure segregation is sort of intentional policies, laws that create segregation. And de facto segregation is segregation that just has to do with sort of the way things are, right? Like yeah. we live in segregated neighborhoods. And so whoop, we have segregation. It's natural or something like that. So. Yeah, exactly. So let's go to the episode. Dr. Kirkland, can you tell us a little bit about being part of the new Resource Center for School Diversity and Integration in New York City? I'm part of an amazing crew of individuals who have come together to be on the um, external advisory group to New York City Schools. And that is the School Diversity Advisory Group. Last week, we released um, our first stages of recommendations, as well as some definitions and some description of our process for integrating New York City schools. As many people know, New York City um, has schools that are among the most segregated in the nation. And we've asked questions since Brown and some, some of us even before that, you know, how might we come together? What's holding us back? And I think now we're beginning to return to those conversations. They're going to be difficult. Um, they will require courage. But I do think that we can begin to resolve some of those conversations through some collective efforts. I mean, New York is kind of paving the way in a lot of ways for doing a community-wide push for school integration. And I think it it started quite a bit, or at least was grounded in some serious activism and grassroots activism. So when New York City announced its diversity plan. And the diversity plan was part of its, you know, educational equity initiative. It was announced June 6, 2017. When it announced that plan, I was one of the few voices who came out for it. There has been a kind of retreat or recession of critical educators around the question of integration because they believe that integration is a bogus bargain. 
The argument here is that if we send black and brown kids to school with white people, that the sending of our kids to school with white people is some kind of antidote, is some type of intervention, mm. right? You know, and so many critics believe that that understanding of integration is fundamentally racist, which it is, right? The idea that, you know, um, in order to get a good education for your kids, they must have some proximity to whiteness, as if whiteness has some magic to it, right, that can begin to challenge his histories of inequity and social violence that is embedded in structures. And so many critics of integration have seen it as a bogus bargain that's tied to a larger project of white supremacy. Yeah. You know, I see it differently. And the reason I see it differently is because I define integration differently. I define integration not as a theoretical question, but as an empirical question. The most diverse schools in New York City have achievement differences, graduation differences, discipline differences that are, you know, much smaller than the differences that you see in our most segregated schools. When you look at the most segregated schools here in New York City, what you begin to see are those disparities growing, right? The biggest disparities in graduation, for instance, are among, you know, um, more economically advantaged and less economically advantaged individuals. And so wherever you have a concentration of poverty or a concentration of vulnerability, juxtaposed against a concentration of privilege, you see the largest disparities, the largest gaps in graduation, in achievement, in discipline, in attendance. And so here, when we look at the empirical question of education, where we see educational inequity stand up is in a place of segregation. And when we see segregation in New York City, we got two types of segregated schools. We got segregated schools that serve um, concentrated, vulnerable students, and we got segregated schools that um, serve a high majority of concentrated privileged students. And it's something about that dynamic that creates not what I call achievement gaps or opportunity gaps, right? I think that that gap metaphor is wrong. Mm. It creates barriers, opportunity barriers, or what mm. I call the opportunity monopoly, where individuals get to hoard not only opportunity, but they also get to deny others from essential opportunities within education. And that is the fundamental definition of segregation. The opposite of segregation is not integration. The opposite of segregation is access, access to those opportunities. And th therefore, you know, when we begin to look at this arrangement between vulnerability and privilege that articulates a segregated system, white supremacy as well as anti-black and brown racism that kind of drives a system of segregation, we know that at the root of both integration and segregation are power. And for integration, if we're going to redefine integration, it simply means our ability to come together, to share power collectively in order to make decisions and create the conditions for the best possible education that we can have for all of our young people. You know, pushing back against the opportunity or achievement gap metaphor is really, really important. Can you talk a little bit about that? I haven't been okay with the achievement gap metaphor for years. And Gloria Latson Billings is an, a, a renowned educational scholar responsible for giving us culturally relevant pedagogy, which later becomes culturally responsive education, Geneva Gates' work, or culturally sustaining education. And she also brought to education, you know, critical race theory. When Gloria Latson Billings was president of the American Educational Research Association, ARA, in her address, her presidential address, she begins to talk about the education debt. 
And her argument was that the achievement gap suggests that there is something wrong with people who just cannot make ground. Those young people are left behind, that there is you know, a deficiency or a deficit in some kids. And so what she begins to move toward is not you know, blaming the kids you know, um, for educational outcomes, right? So instead of talking about failing students, she asked the question, how are we failing students? And when the, when the, when the idea, when the notion of failure moves from the kids to the system, then they have a different construct. We don't have a gap. Now we have what she calls a debt, that we are actually paying some students what we owe them through our public education system, right? We're guaranteeing them, you know, um, opportunities through education, and there are other kids that we're not paying. And, and, and so, so within that idea, right, this movement away from the gap metaphor, you know, gives us something else. It gives us a new language to begin to talk about, you know, um, responsibility. It gives us a new language to, language to talk about accountability. Mm-hmm. It gives us a new language, you know, um, to talk about, you know, what we actually owe our obligations to our young people. To me, that was important. But it didn't go far enough in some ways, right? You know, because in some ways, the idea of debt that we're paying some kids, we're not paying other kids, you know, didn't talk about the hoarding of opportunity that happens within the educational system. The very visible hoarding of opportunity that happens within our society that some people not only have access to opportunity, some people, they kind of like cheat this opportunity. They kind of cling to that opportunity. They kind of like hold on to that opportunity. And we, we need to understand that, right? So, so what happens is you don't have an achievement gap or an opportunity gap, right? Because the gap metaphor is insufficient in explaining the ways that we have privileged some and disadvantaged others, right? What we have are barriers that are constructed between vulnerable individuals and privileged individuals and that those barriers are being kept up, you know, and and as those barriers are being kept up because of policies within the system and because of other arrangements that we have made within the educational system, opportunity gets displaced from one side of that barrier, you know, and it it gets kept exclusively on the other side of that barrier. And so what, what I see is a barrier as opposed to a gap. What I see are obstructions to some individuals gaining access to opportunity and access to privilege. And what I see is other, you know, um, groups of students having, in some ways, in a monopoly on that privilege, right? And so when I begin to talk about opportunity barriers, opportunity boards, it leads to another conversation around these economies, you know, of opportunity, um, opportunity monopolies where certain individuals they get pretty much all of them, all the opportunities, whereas other individuals get relatively few things. That's a great way to put it. Yeah, I mean, you know, at integrated schools, we talk a lot about the difference between uh, integration and desegregation. Uh, and, you know, what we as an organization, at least, are hoping to sort of be part of is moving the needle on integration, not just the reassigning of kids to different schools. Because, you know, I like think we see it across the country that even if you can move the needle on desegregation, you often end up just then resegregating kids as soon as they get into the building, whether that's, you know, gifted and talented or dual language. That's right. That's right. And, and, and segregation takes a lot of different forms now. If you, be, if, I mean, when we begin to think about what segregation is, the logics of segregation, you know, the ways that 
systems of exclusion, systems of separation, you know, um, are seen as educational policy, special education, the idea of restricted environments, non-restricted, least restricted, restricted environments in and, and special education gives us another segregationist policy within the educational context and that adversely affects, you know, students of color. So we know that, you know, um, young men of color, black and Latinx young men are in, in places like California, you know, um, some um, Southeast Asian young men are more likely to be placed in special education than their white counterparts. And at some rates, it's like six to eight times more likely. And we know that they're more likely to be placed into restricted, you know, environments. When we look at gifted and talented programs, we know that those programs are more likely to serve people who have come from some economic advantage. And so here we have strictly within educational policy, and not de facto segregation, but there's your rate segregation, segregation by policy that breaks down that socioeconomic status as well as race. So we have a special education policy that creates segregation by concentrating vulnerability, and we have a gifted, you know, um, sets of policies that concentrate privilege, in a sense, creating the same type of thing that we see um, based on, you know, um, whole school segregation. And so do you, do you think that sort of fundamentally the benefit of fighting for in integration is that white privilege sits on top of our entire society. And so the ability to get opportunity tends to follow white kids. Like, I guess, I guess maybe the other way is like, why, why not just try to f- push back against the opportunity hoarding and provide more opportunities in segregated spaces? Like, what, why, why take the next step towards integration? Yeah, so, so I mean, that's, that's a wonderful question. One, one thing that I will say in terms of that question, I don't want to say that opportunity follow white kids. But what I want to say is that we have designed a social system, an educational system, an educational market, you know, um, that provide white kids not only with more opportunities, but with the ability to, you know, kind of like hoard those opportunities Mm -hmm. um, through systems of segregation, you know, to, to the effect of constructing opportunity monopolies. And then we create all other types of opportunities based on that opportunity hoarding, right? So if you have access to AP courses, or if you have access to algebra, or if you have access to these other things, you also gain access to college. Mm-hmm. You also gain access to you know, other opportunities within that system. And if you don't have those opportunities from day one, you lack access from pre-K, all the way through college. And, and it becomes like this reinforcing system of, uh, of a chain of opportunity um, processes, right? And so I want, I want to say that, you know, whites, you know, kind of like organically just have access to, you know, um, these, to these opportunities that these things follow them. What I would say is that we have a system that has constructed itself through a system of segregation, through segregation, has constructed itself whereby some groups get opportunities and other other groups don't. And that's the system that we want to break. Right. The system that we want to break is a system that, you know, does not see all of our kids evenly, you know, and certainly does not treat them equitably. Mm-hmm. The system that we want to break is a system where power is hoarded, where power is not shared. Right. But the New York City um, Department of Education's definition of integration or new definition of integration that's inspired by a racial justice framework is that integration is, the, is universal access um, to educational environments such as schools and classrooms where power is shared by all people, 
right? The idea here is to bring people together through the expansion and fair distribution of resources, opportunities, and freedom. To me, that's powerful because right now we don't have a fair or even distribution or the, the, the sharing of power that brings people together through the expansion of fair distribution of resources, opportunities, and freedom. So integration from a racial justice framework is saying, hey, give me not only my 40 acres and you, but also allow me to participate in the representative democracy. Allow me to participate in the sharing of resources as they, as they you know, get distributed in order to promote, you know, um, education. You know, allow me to participate in what counts as knowledge, what counts as curriculum, what counts as the language of instruction, what counts as standard or non-standard. Allow me to participate in, in the fundamental design of education. Don't just allow me to participate in the education system that you have designed that so recognizes, you know, um, your cultural values, your social values, that gives you more resources and more freedom within that system. And so what we're arguing, arguing for in terms of integration is far different, you know, than what had been argued for in terms of integration. So I, I want to kind of keep on the subject of language and in you know, how we're thinking about this. And, and one of the things that, um, that you talk about really powerfully to me is the broken schools narrative or crisis narratives around urban schools. Well, I mean, I, I think there are a few things. Before I talk about crisis narratives, I do want to pick up this thing called broken schools um, because to my mind, the schools aren't broken. Perhaps the system is, but the schools are working as they, you know, have been designed to work. Right. They have been working based on a system that seeks to privilege some some individuals. And here we have to move the conversation beyond white privilege. You know, I think that privileges are important for everyone to have what we call white privilege. You know, being able to go to school and feel safe. You know, everyone should enjoy that. I don't want to take that away from white students or more economically advantaged students. In fact, I believe that every child should be able to go to school and experience safety, should be able to experience love, should be able to, you know, um, expand themselves by being exposed to, you know, a variety of cultures, should also have an opportunity to love the culture and the skin and the language that they exist in, that all of these things should happen together. And, and, and it shouldn't be just one group who gets to enjoy those things. So, 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 so the privilege conversation, you know, I want to move beyond it because I think that privileges within a system of education aren't necessarily the culprit. Privileges are things that we should give all of our kids. Lewis Gordon, the philosopher, begins to distinguish between what he calls privilege and license. And he says that, you know, white privilege are things that pretty much we think that everyone should enjoy. Everyone should enjoy, you know, certain privileges, the privilege of safety, food, comforts. He says that but some people have luxury. An idea of luxury is that, you know, there is an extravagance that comes in addition to their privilege. And he goes on to argue that luxury isn't even the problem, right? He argues that the problem is a license, that there's this thing called white license. The idea, the fundamental framework, the ideology that suggests that not only are you privileged, not only do you have luxuries that go beyond your privileges, but you also feel entitled 
within that system that you have a that you have license to that system. You have a license to say what is value and a license to say what is not. You have a license to articulate how resources get used. You got a license to construct the language and the definitions of success and failure. You have a license to disregard. Michelle Alexander in her book, New Jim Crow, calls this disregarding a new form of, you know, racism. She calls it indifference, right? A most, a more potent form of racism. Like the idea that we don't have to care, you know, and we certainly don't have to care enough to humanize individuals, you know, um, within a system. Right. And so back to that conversation about broken schools, the reason why I say you don't have broken schools and what the crisis of schooling is, is that we have resigned somebody to the to the status of, you know, nobody, as Marco Mahil said, we've assigned some students to the status of being expendable. Mm. Like if we had the crisis in education that we have with, you know, um, Latinx students or Black students or Southeast Asian students, you know, um, in places like Minnesota and, 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 and Los Angeles. If we had, if we, if we had the, the, the type of educational crisis that's happening among those students with white students, we wouldn't be indifferent. The, the, the president of the United States might call a state of emergency <laughs> and release extra funding to pour into our schools. Instead of building walls, he might begin to, you know, build bridges and curriculum, right? We, we, we know that when this happened before, right, in, in, in our country, when Russia launched a satellite into space, you know, we, we, we just released billions of dollars into, you know, our educational system. Because we saw that there was a crisis in education, and, and, and we, we summoned the courage in order to educate our best and our brightest, and, um, which, which meant all of our kids in ways that would expand the possibilities of our democracy, but, but we, we put a label on it. We put the label that it was for white folks. Hmm. And that's fundamentally the problem, that the crisis in education right now is that we have so engineered or allowed for a system and this is what segregation, you know, and integration is about. We have so allowed for a system within our multicultural, pluralistic democracy that suggests that the system should only serve particular individuals, depending upon the gender they are, their, the color of their skin, the faith that they espouse, the socioeconomic background of their parents, particularly their father. Right? Then we, we, we constructed a system that says we will serve you based on arbitrary, capricious indicators. And if you don't fall in the right place, the system is not only not designed to serve you, that the system and, and those who are in control of the levers of the system don't care. I agree with the Supreme Court in 1954 that separate is inherently unequal. And that if we're going to move to progress, if we're going to move to valuing, if we're going to, you know, take the crisis of education as we understand it now, which is a crisis that looks back in history at us, a history that says that we can value some, but we certainly do not value all equally or evenly. If we look at that crisis squarely, we have to admit that we haven't done much to resolve it. And what we have done to resolve it certainly hasn't moved our, our young people in directions where we see an education system that actually protects, supports, values, sustains, and advances them in the ways that it has its more elite students. Mm. 
know, I'm, I'm thinking a lot about how, you know, parents in different parts of the country are talking about, I'd love to send my kid to such and such global majority school or urban school, but you know, the school systems are just so broken. Like I just can't do it. It's just broken. And so it, it, it prevents, it prevents a stepping in right? Because there's a sense of personal sacrifice, like you're sacrificing your kid. And, and so, so the ways in which we talk about broken schools, you know, and, and, and I agree with you, right? Like the schools are functioning exactly as intended. How do we transform that conversation so that those spaces are spaces that, that you know, white and or privileged parents can embrace in a much different way? Well, I, w- I want to answer that question in two ways. I think that we've become fond of giving ourselves reasons why not act. Yeah. I think we've become fond of, you know, um, saying that, well, we can't do what's necessary in order to create a better world because this is the way the world is. Without the understanding that the world is constructed, the world is created. We, we, we made the world the way that it is, which means we can remake it in another way. The the, the, the the broken schools that, you know, white parents fear sending their kids to will not change unless we go in and change them. And guess who got the resources? And guess who has, you know, the political capital, according to all social science research that I've read? You know, many of them. And part of that is the problem, is that when they do go in, they go in with, you know, not an agenda of the community, not building with and in solidarity with, you know, the individuals who have existed there, you know, understanding those experiences, they go in there with their own individualist agenda, and it creates tension. Mm-hmm. And not only does it create tension, it creates, you know, levels of resentment that's tied to a more lingering, you know, um, racial history, racial past. And, and I think, I think, I think the, 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 the true conversation, you know, um, those parents are, are having is, you know, what can I get for my kids and what can I get now for them without having to do, you know, um, all the work that it's going to require to engineer and make a better world for all kids. Mm. Yeah. And I think, I think that that, that, that that is fundamentally the problem, that we can actually make better schools if we decide to make better schools, to come together, to have some type of collective participatory um enterprise that is not based on gentrification, but is based on something else that is, you know, um, about bringing people together to share power, not about occupation, not about invasion, but about um, brotherhood and sisterhood and being the best neighbors to, you know, um, our fellow citizens in order to create an educational set of conditions that will benefit everybody. And, and, And I do believe when some parents began to make that decision, you know, not only will they help to create better education systems for their kids, they'll be responsible for making better education systems for all kids. Their efforts will become the model uh, by which we will frame our future. Because we have to, if, if, if this country is to endure, we have to resolve this question. We have to resolve the question about how we collectively can create a society, you know, that does not just benefit the few, but benefit all, right? And I do think that that is a question. It's a big question, but it is not an insurmountable question. It's a question that we can collectively grapple with. It is a a question that we can collectively address. And I do believe that those parents who decide to join in the project of power sharing 
join in the, pro- in the project of bringing people together around collective empowerment in order to rethink how we do schooling in this country, I do believe that those parents will gain benefits for their kids that they don't, that they cannot even imagine. Mm-hmm. A society, you know, um, where poverty begins to diminish. Like Martin Luther King said, you know, um, a threat to justice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. I do believe that the promise of hope anywhere becomes the promise of hope everywhere. That, that when we create a, you know, a society where the conditions are so, where we, you know, begin to erase the fine lines of poverty, the, the, the lines of disparity, where everyone can seek and live out, you know, the American dream, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, where no one is on the margin, none of us have to be frightened that we will be marginal. Mm. And everyone benefits in that conversation. Everyone benefits in that dynamic. That's why those parents should do it. And, and not just those parents, that's why all parents and all community members and even people who don't have kids but are part of our, our society, that's why we should all join in this process because it is one of the most important processes that, that's tied to the American project. The, the other thing that I want to say to that question is that so much of the conversation on integration has privileged white parents to the detriment of all the work that parents of color have done in order to bring together a country. Right, right. When, when I talk about power, I usually talk about power with prepositions. There, there, there's power over, like the type of oppressive power that you see with gentrification. Gentrification is not integration. Gentrification is a type of occupation that, that, that imposes the, the, the sense of power over the people who already exist there. And sometimes it forces those people out of their space. There's also collective power, power with others, right? Empowerment. And then there's power within, this type of internal power. And, and, and the, these two types of power to me are important, right? Because they have forged something. They have forged opportunity. They have forged potential. They have forged hope. And the thing is, This is the type of power that people of color have galvanized around in order to survive, in order to survive under conditions where they have not been recognized or valued. That they have been fighting the fight for integration, even when white parents weren't interested in fighting the fight for integration. So when we start the conversation with how can we get white parents involved, we in some ways erase all of the work that those black mothers and their children, little girls like Ruby Bridges or the little rock nine did, the, the, the assaults that they took, you know, the, both the microaggressive and macroaggressive assaults. Imagine what it was like to have to be walked to school with somebody with a, 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 a machine gun strapped to their hip in order for you to get their safety. Imagine, you know, going and sitting in a classroom where all the, the students don't like you and the parents of those students don't like you, and even the teacher who stands before you looks at you with pity and disgust. Imagine what that was like. Imagine what those parents who sit their kids, who love their kids, went through in order for that to happen. Imagine everything that they have done. And when we start the conversation with white parents, we play into this larger narrative of white supremacy at the detriment 
of everything that parents of color have done, the sacrifices of their children, the sacrifices of themselves in order to push this country forward. So, and answer your question in two ways. Yeah, white parents should do it because it's the right thing to do and we all should do it because, you know, integration and fighting for integration, bringing to people, people together um, to share power in order to make decisions and to participate in the world that we want to believe in, the world that we want to see. We all should do that. But the second part to start with them is fundamentally, fundamentally problematic. We have to recognize first, and we have to recognize also that a lot of work has been done by communities of color, by people of color, by parents of color, children of color, that needs to be recognized. It needs to be held up in the same way that we seek to cater to white parents. It needs to be celebrated and it needs to be, you know, um, valued, validated, affirmed, respected, and put in the front of the conversation. Always. I wonder a little bit about the root of the problem. On some level, there's a there's like a racism root of, of a lot of the problems. But it seems like there's a – the only way we get to a place where we accept that some schools are performing the way they are seems like we have to think differently about certain populations of kids. We have to not have the same expectations for those kids. We not believe that some kids can achieve what all kids can achieve. I think you're right, but I, I want to go back with the notion of racism being at the bottom or being at the base. You know, I've come to believe that, you know, um, racism is real. Racism is certainly driving many of the figures that we see in society. But I don't think that racism is a root. I know that many people look at racism as a root. I don't think that racism is a root. And I think that part of our inability to get to that place, you know, one root of racism is fear. You know, um, another root of racism, you know, um, is avarice, right? You know, the type of pregnant greed um, that makes one desire to hold on to power. I do think that, you know, um, a root of racism might be capitalism, which um, plays with greed and fear to create, you know, the types of hoarding that we see in society. Right, social ranking, you know, based on race is like social ranking that has that was based on, you know, um, family and class in more homogeneous social settings. We've always had, you know, um, in some ways these casts, you know, and at the root of these casts is the idea of a performance of humanity that wants to project itself above other features and forms of humanity. You know, and I think I think it's important for us to get there. You know, the other part is exposure. That the world our world's become so small. You know, we we, we read, you know, um the newspapers that think like us. We look at the news channel that, you know, kind of echoes our thoughts. We, you know, hang out with people who are not too far away from where we are. We we, we live in a, in a in a fairly insular world. Right, that type of tribalism, you know, especially when it comes to the, the, the level of, you know, the ways that we think and the ways that we behave and be, how we see ourselves, the mirrors that we get to put up for ourselves and the ways that we fear seeing other parts of ourselves that may be less, less advantageous, right? So that, that, that is another fabric. That is another root. Mm. 
And, and there's a question about, you know, what it means to see some kids from a deficit perspective in order to see your kids not from that perspective. Right. Tony Morrison writes in Playing in the Dark that whiteness owes much to its construction of blackness because without blackness, you have no whiteness. Without, you know, something to stand on, you're, you're, you're at the same elevation as everyone else. And because of this human hunger and need to be, you know, lofty, because of this hum, human drive to be, to, to hold their head up to, to, to a place where other people cannot, right? We, we create these steps. We create these, 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 these staircases or these stones that we stand on. And, and, and that becomes the fundamental architecture of what Niobe Way has called the crisis of connection, our ability to disconnect from others. And that ability to disconnect from others creates a crucible of racism that begins to drive and explain all of these other things. It's the reason why some parents can care about their kids and kind of objectify, you know, other kids, not care about other kids. It's the reason why we hold on to a cling to narrative that some people are in some ways genetically or culturally or socially deficient. At the root of it is a fear, lack of exposure, the idea that we want to be better, a supremacy, or the idea of supremacy that these things are based on. Right? And when we, when we begin to understand, you know, what these ingredients are, we can begin to attack, you know, the cause of the racist disease, mm. right? Seeing racism as a symptom of something else, as opposed to just attacking racism as a symptom of something that's much deeper. And I know that this may not be, you know, um, politically correct to say. And it's not to say that racism is, isn't a problem. Racism is fundamentally and very much a problem. But it may not be the root, right? It may not be the self-causing thing that we need to begin to, you know, um, explore and look at when, we, when we're talking about having conversations with, you know, um, curing not only people, but curing our society. You know, um, from the ills of, you know, um, social disablement and hatred and, you know, um, this visceral feeling that others are inferior, you know, that seem to be so, you know, um, rapid, hmm. you know, inside of our, our, our society. Yeah, that's really powerful because I think if if what we're actually talking about is the ways that we divide ourselves, the ways that we look to, you know, hold our heads above other people, as you were saying, to find our ways to the top, that if we're not fighting back against that sort of underlying thing, then then if we fix the racism, then we f- we haven't actually fixed the problem. Really. That's right. We just find some other way to to try to hold ourselves up above, above other people. Right. So, so those things get articulated in other ways. And they already do get articulated in other ways. Right. right. When you do have, you know, homogenous populations, you know, the kid, you know, um, who grows up without a father, he has a mother, a single mother, well, that kid is a little bit less than or if, you know, um, they live on the other side of their tracks in a trailer um, home and they go to the school or you all live in a trailer home and you live in a bigger, you know, um, if a person, you know, happens to be a size that's not socially acceptable, you know, within a particular space, or if they have a gender identity that does not correspond with what we would consider typical, right? I mean, we, it, it, these things articulate themselves in a variety of you know, um, but at the fundamental base, you know, when we get to the root, it's going to require that we ask questions about how we socially organize ourselves. At the base, when we get to the root, it's going to raise questions about whether or not 
you know, capitalist competition, you know, um, our hunger for, you know, elevation, the, the idea that we're constantly in competition with our brothers and sisters, whether or not that's the way we want to continue to organize ourselves. Hmm. And if not, we organize ourselves in a different way. This is what integration is fundamentally about. It's about asking that question about can we fundamentally organize ourselves in a different way where our differences aren't seen as a problem, but where our differences are seen as places where we can not just celebrate, right? But let live and exist alongside each other, right? Let be in a world where we're, we're, we're different, you know, forms the vibrancy and the essence, you know, um, of our being. That piece is important. Integration will beg that we ask a, a different set of questions about of ourselves and about you know the world that we want to live in. David, one of the things that that comes into conversations around education, kind of in general, and certainly the issue of segregation in particular, is this idea of pity, right? Like at those schools right? Like we can feel badly for those students who aren't getting XYZ things or don't have access to XYZ opportunities, you know, but pity itself is such a distancing position. And, and, and I think it's incredibly toxic. You know, there, there's an arrogance to pity. And, and, and that, that arrogance is, you know, it, it's fundamentally a Those who can pity is expressing the type of license they're expressing a type of, you know, racism, the racism that Michelle Alexander calls indifference, you know, um, that you can distance a problem from yourself. It allows you to say that you are in some way superior, white, white, white supremacy, and that someone else is inferior, anti-black, anti-brown racism. You know, it, it feeds within these larger narratives that we've been talking about, right? And part of the arrogance of pity is the conclusions that it draws. These assumptions about, you know, something being, you know, fundamentally wrong with other individuals, but also the conclusion that suggests that something is fundamentally right about me. Like that, that, that one can hoard opportunity. That, that, that you go to school, like here in New York City, you have some students, you know, who get to enjoy schooling where, you know, they have Starbucks, they have escalators, they have, you know, um, marble casings, you know, um, on the stairwells and, and other places. Right? They, they enjoy these extremely luxurious, you know, um, conditions. Whereas you have other students who go to school every day and they're met by metal detectors. They don't have windows in the school. And then when they do, those windows are barred. The school functions much like a factory, you know, mixed with a prison, right? And, and, and so individuals to pity the students that go to those schools without pitying the position of luxury and extravagance that they live in while other people don't have those conditions. You know, it speaks to, you know, a larger narrative of dehumanization that exists within those who are pity. Mm. It's like if I had like a, a, a mansion with, with 100 rooms and I only live in one and 99 go unlived in every night and I see someone homeless on a cold street and I pity them for not having a home. But the problem isn't there. The problem is mine. Where is my compassion? I have a hundred. I have a hundred rooms. I have more than enough. What happened to me? Mm. What happened to me? Fundamentally, what happened to me that 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 I cannot, for another human being, embrace their humanity in ways that convicts me for having too much? 
And there is a such thing. I know our society don't want to suggest that you can have too much, but there is a such thing as having too much. And 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 and, and, and the problem with equity is given the social you know, condition of the world, right? The problem with equity for so many people, especially those who have too much, the problem with equity is giving anything up feels like oppression. And for us to achieve equity, some people will have to give some things up so that other people can rightly gain. You know, even if those gains are about, you know, having the basics, so some people will have to give some things up. And so to me, that pity stands, it is an illustration of another problem, a larger problem that ties into, you know, the ways that we have been dehumanized. We have been dehumanized in this conversation toward not only indifference, but dehumanized in a way that props ourselves up. This belief that the things that we have are earned, the things that we have and possess belong to us you know, based on our own, our own merits, right? The myth of meritocracy. And, and some of those things, some of those tangles need to be untangled. They need to be torn down as well. There, there are these big issues around sort of societal level problems. What's the, what do you think the power is in the school, at the school level? If, if we're working towards integration at, at the school level, why should our energies be focused there rather than housing or workplace or other other areas that we could focus that? Well, let, let, let me just say, of course, those things are, you know, um, interrelated. That neighborhood residential segregation does drive school, school segregation. And of course, our inability to integrate, you know, um, the workforce, you know, um, completely where everyone has a job, where everyone gets paid. It drives some of the segregation and inequity that we see within schooling, right? And I think we would be naive to suggest that there is no interrelationship. But I do think that there's some things that schools can do alone. You know, I do think that, you know, um, school segregation isn't just a factor, right? A matter of, you know, consequence, you know, or a matter of chance. I do believe that, you know, some of school segregation is de jure. It's a matter of policy or sets of policies that have been written over the long run. I gave you policies that dealt with, you know, um, student placement. You know, when we begin to think about student placement, some students, you know, um, almost, you know, generated by race, you know, um, between gifted and talented programs, you know, magnet schooling, you know, um, and, you know, special education um, programs and discipline programs, like who gets, you know, kicked out where, you know, um, discipline becomes another type of, you know, academic placement program. You know, these are forms of segregation that are driven by policy. They're driven, you know, exclusively by school policy. And when we begin to look at, you know, the, the biggest casualty of Brown, you know, the biggest casualty of Brown wasn't just that, you know, people were forced to be with one another before they were ready or, or, or the illusion of desegregation for integration, right? You know, the biggest casualty of Brown were black and brown teachers. Pre-Brown, we had a, a, a supple black um, teaching force. After Brown, the, the black teaching force begins to disappear. Well, we need to bring back a, that, that black teaching force because we understand that all students benefit from having a diverse teacher experience, right? You know, and, and there is research that suggests that all students say that they kind of like 
having, you know, um, teachers of color, right? So we do have these policy things that, that, that have created the situation of school segregation that we see. And what we need to do, we need to back up. We need to take a look at policies at local levels and see how they contribute to segregation. And then we need to begin to think about ways to incentivize schools and districts to integrate and see integration, you know, um, as something that is desirable within the metrics of schooling. Just like we see test scores as important. We should want to see, you know, um, a diversity among teachers, a diversity in terms of curriculum material, a diversity in terms of how we spend resources, a diversity in terms of how we restore and discipline our young people, a diversity in terms of our enrollment practices of students. We should see that as a gold standard of education, and we should, you know, reward um, schools who commit, you know, um, to creating integration across those five domains. And to me, just as, you know, there, there's so much of segregation has been constructed and maintained through, you know, a, a web of policies, I do think that we can create incentives and policies that can begin to untangle or disentangle that web, you know, um, and create for conditions that will inspire integration. I agree. Are there any last things that you'd like to leave with our listeners? you know, who, who are parents who are either have enrolled their kids in, you know, global majority schools, because our listenership is largely white and are privileged or who are, who are thinking about kindergarten or middle school for next year. Are there any last things you'd like for them to kind of walk away thinking about? Yeah. yeah. A, a few things. I would say, you know, um, read the Supreme Court's decision in Brown versus Board of Education. So read Brown one, also read Brown two. Um, I would say read also um, both decisions in the Michigan Millican decisions, Millican one and two, you know, around forced busing. You know, my desegregation is not integration, you know, and how we need to move beyond desegregation to anti-segregation and pro, you know, um, integration. And those two things aren't, you know, um, mutually exclusive. Read Richard Rothstein's The Color of Law. I think it's a phenomenal book. Read anything by Vanessa Sutter Walker, who deals with the history of segregation in the United States and its impact on our schools. Um, listen to podcasts and read things by Nicole Hannah Jones. I think that Nicole Hannah Jones is one of the thought leaders, you know, on the conversation, national thought leaders on the conversation around integration and segregation in the United States. She deserves to be listened to. I would also say, you know, um, take a look at Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, Mark Lamont Hill's Nobody, Brian Stevenson's Just Mercy, as well as a slew of other books. Um, kind of easy coaches. We were eight years in power where, where he deals directly with the question of resources in terms of compensatory payback, what we know now as, you know, reparations. Um, but also we kind of easy coaches between the world and me. I think that these books give an, uh, an, an amazing and excellent foundation, both in terms of a history, a deep history of how our country has segregated itself and how policies, programs, and decisions played a big role in that segregation. And I also think that, you know, we need a context behind what a segregated society means for those who exist and live in concentrated vulnerability. Um, the last thing I would say is begin to distinguish diversity, inclusion, and 
integration as a form of transformation, social transformation, are not the same. Diversity is like being asked to the dance. Inclusiveness or inclusion is like being asked to the dance. But integration, from a racial justice perspective, as in transformation, is the ability to dance on your own terms, to your own song, in your own way, your own beat. And that's what we want. We don't just want to be invited. We don't just want to be asked to dance. We want to be able to dance to that song that most resonates with us, to the thing that makes our feet move in the ways that our feet move and and the ways that other people's feet move may be different than ours. And that is okay. We want that type of world. And so we're going to need to do some digging. We're going to need to begin to be clear about what we're talking about when we talk about integration. I think that integration is a worthwhile thing to um, aspire toward because I think at the end of integration, we have a better world, you know, not just for ourselves and others, but for our futures. And I think that, that that's what we need to aspire to. So I want to thank your listeners too. So thank you all and thank, and thank you too. So I feel like this is one I'm going to be coming back to a lot. It is, it's, you know, it's a much different kind of conversation than the ones that we have that are like on the level of the potluck or nachos or something. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think there's space for both, right? I think they're both important, but I'm just, I'm very grateful to Dr. Kirkland for giving us this sort of necessary meta view of integration, really a, a grounding and a vision for integration. Yeah. And I think he provides like a really clear call to action that shies away from nothing, you know? Yeah. So we always do a kind of summary at the end of these episodes, and Andrew, I don't want to. <laughs> like, I'm, I just kind of want to let this lie, right? Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot. I think we need to, we need to listen to him for sure, and maybe not us. Not us. Yeah, but I will say just 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 <laughs> because I can't resist it, I think. <laughs> I think the, the the thing that I would like to just put out here now, because I think it's important, is the thing that's been sticking with me since this conversation with Dr. Kirkland is the the importance of language, the importance of how we talk about things, yeah. you know, the opportunity barriers versus opportunity gaps. You know, a barrier was constructed, a gap just exists. There's real power in in highlighting the intentionality in how we talk about these things. You know, he pushed back about my question about um, you know, privilege and opportunity following white people to, to say that we constructed a system that allows for that. I'm, I'm not sure we were talking about different things, but the way we were talking about it was different. And that's important. Yeah, I think this is something we can definitely be much more deliberate about. Yeah. You know, and I think in this interview, there was some calling out, right, of our work as integrated schools and, you know, some shining of light on the centering of white families in this work that we need to take seriously. Yeah, and and we will in an upcoming episode. <laughs> Not right now. <laughs> so, dear listeners, what do you think about it? Send us your voice memos. Send us your emails. Hello at integratedschools.org. And check your show notes for all the homework that Dr. Kirkland has given us. Yeah. Um, I know. I've got my work cut out for me. Yeah, I'll be busy. And I think we just need to sit a while and ingest. So, yeah. Thanks to everyone who has emailed and rated and reviewed the podcast. Your feedback means a lot to us. And we are grateful to be in this with you all as we try to know better and do better. 
See you next time. <laughs>